Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. Everything is so dumb, 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 Wowee, everybody. Hey. What? So what? Oh my gosh. It's us. It's us again. It's us on the radio. On the podcast. Sure. What's the name of our show? Our name, show-wise, is Worst Year Ever. That's Welcome. Right. I'm Cody Johnston. I'm Katie Stoll. And our third is... I <laughs> am also around and exist. I am uh, your, your local daredevil uh, reporter, Robert Evans, who has started this recording with an almost empty battery on my recorder. So we love am that. I am I braver than the troops? Yes. Obviously. There's a Obviously. fine line between bravery and insanity, and you walk not, that line, Robert, yeah. daily. And Unlike, yeah, exactly. I like, like how I'm right before some... this, you were like, I think my battery will last for the entire recording. But then when we started, you were like, oh, by the way, it's almost dead. So we'll see what <laughs> <Yes>. happens. <laughs> If we exaggerating your danger is the better part of valor. <laughs> so if we are suddenly without Robert halfway through, you know why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we talking about this week, guys? I know the answer, but our listeners don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, they might probably because it probably says so in the title. Oh sure. Um, I, about- what what are we talking about? Because I wrote a random essay. I just flipped to a a, a page in the dictionary. Ooh. Um, Again, yeah. towing that line between bravery and insanity. <laughs> I'm not- excited for. A- an entire essay on a word in the dictionary. <laughs> That's like Cody for a while was writing songs that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, click random on Wikipedia and then write a song about it. Yeah, but <laughs> but today we are here to discuss Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Finally, Paul Montgomery Warren. That's right. <laughs> uh, and I'm 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 excited about it. Good. You know what? Excellent. We're Great. all excited about it. We're all we're, we're um we're all uh. Uh, in this episode, secretly foreign Warren, right? There it is. There, There's we, the slogan. We got it. I thought it was Warrenita files. <laughs> oh, Warrenistas. Born 
to warn. Yeah, there we go. There we go. (laughs) Don't no no notes. No notes. Perfect. Um. Well, I I am going to be starting. We're a with a bith. Warren. <laughs> at, okay, so at first I was I thought he said with a bitch. With a bitch. See, at first I was irritated for being interrupted, but that was worth it. And so it's Sorry, fine. I everybody everybody be okay with the fact that he just a man, a white man just interrupted the only female host on this show. I I have to say, as a white man, I think the only time interrupting is justified is when you have a joke as good as that. I agree. I agree with you both completely. <laughs> or I guess Elizabeth would be. Elizabeth? Also, yeah. All of these are good. All Elizabeth, no, baby. No notes. You're, <laughs> no notes. You're welcome to it. And you're also welcome to born to Warren, mm-hmm. you know, all of <laughs> it. Whichever you like, whichever you like. Um, but yes, as I was saying, uh, I am starting off this episode talking about uh, her early life because I think it comes as no surprise to anybody in this room or our listeners that I'm probably the one that's the most pro-Warren. So I thought that would uh, remove some of the conflicts of interest. Um, I'm still fair and balanced and all of that. Uh, but yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by talking about her origin story. You guys ready for this? I'm so ready. It's a story she references a lot on the campaign trail. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know it or know pieces of it, but it is important information uh, in understanding her and where she comes from. So we're covering it anyway. Uh, I will say that I'm a little bit tired of her talking about it. Uh, (laughs) And again, this is coming from a fan of hers. And at first it felt very organic and authentic. And in many ways it still does because it is her story authenticity and having a good story that grabs voters' attention is something that we all talk about as being important for a candidate, and obviously that's what she's going for. But at this point, every time she gets up on stage and starts talking about her childhood, it seems a bit canned and political Mm. now, uh, partly because she uses the exact same words verbatim every time. Um, Yeah, I've noticed the same thing you have, and I've wondered how much of it is, you know, inauthenticity, trying to, like, force a message, and how much of it is just, like... She's not a natural campaigner. That's not right. what she does. She had a career for sixty years before, or you know, she was sixty years before she got into, old. Before she got into politics, yeah. Like maybe it's just weird for her, and she does. She's not great at it. Absolutely, yeah. and so that's just something that I want everybody to keep in mind yeah. as we're going through it, and and just thinking about. Also, you know, a reminder that she is a politician. Like it's very easy, or there's an instinct for us, especially in me. I, I see it to want to put our preferred candidate on a pedestal. But at the end of the day, she's running for president, and there's something inherently yeah. wrong with anybody that wants to be president. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, even the, even the Elizabeth only, Warren. The only pure candidate in this race is that one admiral that was apparently running and dropped out this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, crowd. Um, the guy whose name is the name. The, the you know. Yep. The oh name. yeah, that guy, you know, with, the guy the name. with the name. The guy with the name. Yeah. Anyway, God bless you, random admiral. Uh, Okay, so Elizabeth was born in Oklahoma City in 1949, which makes her 70 years old. Uh, She was the fourth child in a lower middle class family. Her mother was a stay at home mom. Uh, According to Warren, the family, quote, lived on the ragged edge of the middle class. And we didn't have much money, but like millions of other families, we got by. But that all changed at the age of 12 when her father had a heart attack, putting her family in economic peril due to medical bills and a loss of income. Uh, and they were about to lose their house, and her mother had to start working for the very first time in her life. Uh, Quote, 
One day, I walked into my mother's room and found her crying. She said, we're not going to lose this house. She wiped her eyes, blew her nose, and pulled on her best dress, the one she wore to funerals and graduations. At 50 years old, she walked down the street and got her first paying job, answering the phones at Sears. That minimum wage job saved our home, and my mother saved our family. This is one of those things that she says verbatim over and over again. I was, I, I've seen her say it at a rally. I've seen it printed in many different articles from different events. Right. Um, I was wondering, like, where do you get that quote exactly? Like, which day it's was it? It all been over. Right? I, yeah. Again, I, I saw her say it verbatim uh, once. You know, and it, it this is weird. I, we talked in the last episode about the things about Bernie, like the an- economic anxiety that I identified with. I also weirdly identify with this because I, too, grew up in Oklahoma uh, and had a mom who, to help support the family, had to work at Sears. Yeah. Uh, so. Oh, wow, that's very specific. Wow, <laughs> yeah, that is. Like, but, like, if Warren, to be fair, Warren talks about this a lot, but she also talks about it in context of something that she sees wrong now, which is that people used to be able to have a normal job and it provided an actual livable wage. She also started waiting tables at the age of 13 at her aunt's restaurant to help make ends meet. Um, from the time Elizabeth was in second grade, she wanted to be a teacher. But her family didn't have money for college. Uh, Actually, in her 2017 book, Warren wrote about an argument she had with her mother over Warren's chances at getting into college that became so heated that her mom slapped her. And I'm sure that uh, a lot of people have been slapped by their moms. (laughs) But it does. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing I can share with Elizabeth Warren. See? She's relatable. Um, I I just share that because Warren's... It's just a thing to keep in mind. Warren talks about her mother a lot. It's, she's obviously very formative, um, but she also obviously had a very contentious relationship. So as I was doing this research, it just occurred to me, like, I, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions or whatever, but, you know, there might be an element of, of retroactively spinning things in a certain way for the purposes of being political. I don't know. But mm. anyway, her mom pops up in her story a lot. Anyway, despite that, uh, Elizabeth ended up earning a debate scholarship when she was 16. I mean, of course she did. Have you seen that woman up on a debate stage? She's wonderful. Um, And she ended up attending George Washington University. Um, Elizabeth planned to follow her lifelong dream and become a teacher, but left university after only two years to marry her high school sweetheart, Jim Warren. The couple moved to Houston, where she enrolled in the University of Houston, a commuter college that costs $50 a semester. She loves to include that detail. Literally every time she talks it's about this. It's a good this. detail. It's a good Cheap detail. Uh, and she graduated in 1970 with a degree in speech pathology and audiology. Uh, and it was then. That- <laughs> That's so weird. That's my mom's got a degree in speech pathology. What? <laughs> Wait, this is wild. Yeah. And I also taught special ed for exactly a year like Elizabeth Warren. So I think that we're winning Robert over today. Uh-huh. I know who he's Elizabeth with. Elizabeth. I'll get, um, I'll get it. I'll get it. Yeah, speaking of special education, uh, it was then that she started teaching children with special needs at a public elementary school, and she loved it. However, at 22, after her daughter Amelia was born, Elizabeth found out that she no longer had a job when she was ready to come back from maternity leave. Uh, So for two years, she became a stay-at-home mom, uh, but obviously it wasn't the life that she wanted for herself. She, quote, tried desperately to be a good wife and mother, even though she, quote, desperately wanted something more. So when Amelia turned two, Elizabeth enrolled in Rutgers Law School. Uh, I mean, on her website, she just calls it a public college that costs $450 a semester. Um, But it was Rutgers. Uh, And this time was very formative formative for her in many ways. Uh, I mean, no, she's getting 
her law degree. She's got children. Uh, but specifically, the struggle of balancing motherhood and a career. It's another thing that she discusses a lot, specifically the lack of affordable daycare options for mothers and families. And you can see that reflected in, um, you know, her campaign plaf- platform. So anyway, three years later, she graduates from law school. Uh, At that point, she was pregnant with her son, Alex, and she learned very quickly that it's difficult to find employment in a law firm when you're pregnant. Just shocking, right? Mm. Mm. Very. Surprising. I think. I think. I think. I think. Preggers is the. Preggers is. Term. You're right. That is yeah. when you're prego. Mm. Pregger. Mm-hmm. Pregger. Preggers no. you. Pre- <laughs> yes. God damn it! Cody. That's a whole, Sorry. whole other thing. Um, so okay, she couldn't find a job. So for a short period of time, uh, she simply practiced law out of her living room. Uh, she popped a sign up in the window hmm. and like made a made a home office. Uh, but after a couple years, she returned to her first love, teaching. Uh, when Elizabeth became a law professor for more than 30 years, teaching at Rutgers, University of Houston, University of Texas, Austin, University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard University. But that's stuff that Robert is going to go into in a bit more detail. Mm. I hope she taught woot, Pete woot. at Harvard. I hope so, too. That'd be so cute. Mm-hmm. All these full circle moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, But then in 1978, Warren and her husband got divorced. Uh, She then remarried uh, to her current husband, Bruce, a couple years later. Um, When talking about her divorce, Warren cites the fact that she changed over the years to become more independent, but he wanted a traditional wife. So she asked if he wanted a divorce, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, But this apparently caused another rift between her and her mother, who thought that Elizabeth should be married and provided for. Um, There was actually a tweet being circulated uh, over this weekend on December 1st uh, about a woman uh, at an event who asked Elizabeth a very personal question. Uh, She asked if she ever had had someone in her life who she looked up to who didn't accept her. And Elizabeth became visibly choked up and replied, my mother, Uh, you know, and held back tears talking about her mother's disappointment when she couldn't make her marriage work. Quote, my mother and I had very different views on how to build a future. She wanted me to marry well, and I really tried, and it just didn't work out. And there came a day when I had to call her and say, this is over. I can't make it work. And I heard the disappointment in her voice. I knew how she felt about it. And sometimes you just got to do what's right inside and hope that maybe the rest of the world will come around to it. And maybe they will, and maybe they won't. But the truth is, you got to take care of yourself first. And then she said, give me a hug. And they had an emotional hug. I include this, well, first of all, to illustrate what I just talked about, about, mother, about yeah. the mother, her relationship with her mother. But I don't include this because it's political per se or it points to anything specific in her platform. But I included it because it does encapsulate the authenticity that people feel from her. Obviously, I, I've been criticizing how she's been falling into a kind of a canned performance yeah. sometimes. But this specifically is when she shines. When she's thrown a surprise question, she always answers authentically and does so with a humanity that we don't see from most politicians. Uh, and it's something that really uh, is compelling to me. Uh, I, I do believe her to be an inherently good person. Um, and again, I don't get that from all the candidates. Mm-hmm. Some of that, I think, has to do with the fact that you know, she is a politician now. She, you know, you could say maybe this was her plan from the beginning, but I don't, I really don't get that from someone who no. didn't enter politics until she's, what, 60 years old? Like yeah. She had not, I mean, I'll, we'll we'll cover this in my bit, but she had an a, a almost absurdly full career as an yes. academic before she jumped into politics. So she is, unlike a lot of these people, a human being. I would like, like Bernie, 
the thing that I dislike about him the most is that he's been, never been anything but a politician. Yeah. And part of why I give him a little bit of a pass on that is he's more of kind of a revolutionary in yes. that vein. Um, so he's not, you know, he's never just been about the power. He has specific things he wants to do. And I, I agree with those things. So I'm okay with him. But he has, you know, yeah. it's all he's ever done that's meaningful. And yes. Buttigieg has done stuff outside of politics, but it was all just to get into politics. Exactly. Biden's been politics forever. Yeah, I, I do yeah, like that. Buttigieg she did came shit. out of the womb wanting to be a politician. Yeah. yeah. She clearly <laughs> accomplished, like, enough goals that if she had. That's if her academic career is all she'd ever done, she would be an extremely accomplished person. Absolutely. And then she got into politics. I like that. All right. I'm about to hand this off to Robert in a second, but I would be remiss if I talked about Elizabeth Warren and didn't discuss the Native American controversy. Uh, (laughs) As I'm sure most of you already know, Warren has long claimed to have Native American blood in her lineage. Um, I've seen different numbers on this and different articles, but her mother was something like 132 Cherokee. And according to Warren, she grew up in a household where her Indian heritage was celebrated. Quote, these are my family's stories. I've lived in a family that has talked about Native Americans, talked about tribes since I was a little girl. I still have a picture on my mantle, and it's a picture my mother had before that, a picture of my grandfather. And my Aunt B has walked by that picture at least a thousand times and remarked that he, her father, my papa, had high cheekbones like all of the Indians do. Because that is how we saw it, and your mother got those same great cheekbones, and I didn't. She thought that was the bad deal she'd gotten in life. Look, okay, that's a really (laughs) shaky grounding. No, but you know, like... It's it's super shaky, and uh, I have nothing but criticism for how she's handled this yes. in the modern era. That said, again, I grew up in this the exact mm-hmm. same almost part of the world. I was in Idabel, not Oklahoma City, but it's it's not that far away. Uh, the culture's very much the same. Sure. And I had family stories about my uncle who was, you know, one sixteenth Cherokee or something like that. I don't know if he actually is, but right. growing up, we always talked about it. And I do not know a single white family that I grew up around or knew in Oklahoma who did not have some family lore about Native American sure. heritage. It's, I totally, it's, it's yes. bogus usually, but it's it's a thing. It's totally. a thing in Oklahoma. Totally, <laughs> yeah. I, and I believe that. And this is a different time, sure, all of that stuff. And we'll dig into this a little more in a second. But anyway, she used this heritage of the story to help with certain things like college admissions and jobs. For years, she listed herself as Native American in a directory of law professors, and she was literally hired at Harvard as a diversity hire. Uh, apparently, at the time, Harvard had been subject of a discrimination lawsuit uh, with its hiring practices, and the school was openly trying to hire women and people of color. Uh, you know, and, and I think there's some retroactive like, no, 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 no. Uh, and obviously she deserves the job and she's qualified and she had a long career as a professor. So I'm not trying to throw that under the bus. But there are, are, are documented moments when a spokespeople for the university referred to Warren as a Native American professor or uh, her Harvard's first woman of color. And yeah, there's a little. So <laughs> like, look, I, I don't have a doubt that she believed that she has this heritage uh, in, in, in her life, you know. Uh, I I do have a problem with people claiming min- minority status when they don't actually have it. Yeah. I mean, like you see it all the time in Hollywood, people trying to pass as a diversity hire. But she didn't grow up as a Native American. She went through a lot of hardships to get where she is now. But it's very different than actually growing up as a Native American yeah. and, ha- and yeah. bringing those experiences to the table. No. And, and you have to know that sh- she knew that, you right. know, on some level. And all these, like all the quotes of like, 
where they're saying like first uh, Native American thing. Like she knew about that right. stuff. Too, she knew about and, that, like, and like well, she, she might see and... herself as that, but she did not grow. She does not have a Native American background. It, uh, one thing I I do think needs to be. Did you come across the Boston Globe analysis of her? What her heritage? What impact it had on her? Her hiring at Harvard? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, they. I'm just going to read a quote from an article they did on. They conducted the most extensive investigation into what impact, if any, it had during her time at Harvard. Um, and I, I, I'm just going to. Um, I'll quote a couple of paragraphs from that real quickly. The Globe found clear evidence in documents and interviews that her claim to Native American ethnicity was never considered by the Harvard Law faculty, which voted resoundingly to hire her, or by or by those who hired her to four prior positions at other law schools. Hmm. Um, the Globe examined hundreds of documents, many of them never before available, and reached out to all 52 of the law professors who are still living and were eligible to be in that pound hall room at Harvard Law School, which is where they voted to hire her. Some are Warren's allies, others are not. 31 agreed to talk to the Globe, including the law professor who was at the time in charge of recruiting minority faculty. Most said they were unaware of her claims to Native American heritage, and all but one of the 31 said those claims were not discussed as part of her hire. One professor told the Globe he is unsure of whether her heritage came up, but is certain that if it did, it had no bearing on his vote on Warren's appointment. Well, that's good. That's great. Yeah. That's so different that, from that, stuff that I've seen. I, I think that that's probably true, but I think that there were some people, there might have been some people that used her status and her listing as that to yeah. spin it in it, some it, capacities. It, and and I, I just and I'm sure she did in like a social yeah. capacity. Yeah. Um. Anyway, obviously, her this has circled her entire political career. This controversy. Um. And then we get to last year, and she decides to put the whole thing to bed and does a Super. DNA test <sighs> at the urging, Jesus. apparently, of John Lovett. This is something that Cody told me. Yeah. Yeah. He suggested it to her on when she was on the the Pod Save shows. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was like, why don't you? Why don't you and do this? Why don't you just do this so and, and put it to bed? Stupid. So she did that. It's um, incredibly embarrassing because it turns out she's got like one, one. I can't even read this percentage. Yeah, one, it's, it's, a, it's, it's nothing basically. It's nothing. It's basically comparable to what everybody in America has. The percentage yeah. of Native America, American. And um, it's like, I like like the Biden. You know, uh, biting his wife's finger thing is like if you watch the context of the video, it's not as silly as it looks in the screen grabs. I actually think it's this kind is... of silly and adorable. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like it. it's it's like endearing and stuff. Like yeah. he's not it's not being he's not it's like evidence of his elderly dementia or whatever. Um, th- this Elizabeth Warren blood testing thing is maybe the dumbest single move one of the yeah. candidates has pulled in this election, and it's just as bad in context as it seems out yeah. of context. Yeah, and it feels like this conversation has yeah. receded from the front lines. Uh, you know, and I was surprised at, that she's been surging at times, maybe not right now, but you better believe if she gets the nomination, this is going to yeah. be a huge talking point. And so it's oh, an important yeah. thing for us to remember and keep yeah. in mind. And like um, even figure out like, I, I, I just don't think she has yet figured out how to talk about it in a sure. way that like really addresses all of these issues. Well, and like when you think about like thinking about the worst year ever, like yeah. it's going to be yeah. uh, real, <laughs> real terrible. She's spoken about it, but here's one of the quotes that mm. she said on it. Uh, like anyone who's been being honest with themselves, I know that I have made mistakes and I'm sorry <sighs> for the harm I caused. I've listened and I've learned a lot and I'm grateful for the many conversations that we've had together. It's a great honor to be able to partner with Indian country and that's what I've tried to do as a senator and that's what I promise I will do as president of the United States of America. And to be fair, she has... You know, come up with a series of plans to help the Native American community, uh, you know, with different infrastructure and education, healthcare, all of that. And that's great. 
this is a, a community that's grotesquely ignored and overlooked. And I think that I can't speak for them. Uh, certainly some people have come around on that. Um, but again, it's the general population that I'm worried about. And again, how this yeah. can be weaponized yeah, in a general election. Of it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's going to be weaponized in the grossest possible yes, ways. And that's just yeah. if she's the candidate, that's something we'll all have to deal with. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, this is a great time for us to take a, a quick break for, Ooh. you know, products and services. Speaking of cultural appropriation, yes. you know what doesn't appropriate from cultures? These the sponsors. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> <laughs> Products. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and I start on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everything is so dumb. 
All right, we're back. We are. Um, Katie just did her great uh, uh, write-up and, and coverage of, of E-War. Thank you. Um, which is actually a pretty the cool ele- The electronic nickname. war. Yeah, yep, yep. That's what Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plunge headfirst into her next dealamajig. Um, before I get into that, I want to talk a little <laughs> bit about cousin, something. Dealamajig. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about something that uh, I don't have like written up in the script, but it's something I've seen a lot of leftists on Twitter drag Warren for, which is her... Her background is a Republican for most of her life, and in mm-hmm. fact, a very conservative Republican for most of her life. Yeah. Um, she consistently refuses to say whether or not she voted for Ronald Reagan. Um, she says even her husband doesn't know, and she sleeps with him every night. Um, that said, I have no doubt in my mind that she voted for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. Um, like if she did it, she yeah. would just come out and say yeah, it. Yeah, if you can't say yeah. no to that, then you probably did. Um and, you know, Reagan was a, a fucking monster who did horrific things to this country. And it's bad to have voted for him. Yeah. That said, he won overwhelmingly. And also, like, yeah, her you know, vote I talk a lot it. about <laughs> I talk a lot about the potential of a second American civil war. And one thing that will make it impossible to not have one is if people can't overcome their backgrounds in regressive conservative politics and have an incredibly progressive career mm-hmm. uh, as both an academic uh, and uh, a consumer advocate and a politician. Um, like if, if we can't let people do that, uh, we're, we're kind of fucked. So yeah, she like, and I, I also think it's not necessarily a negative that she knows how to talk to conservatives. Right. And I think one of the things that is a really evidence that she's good at it is how, like I agree personally more with with Bernie Sanders' wealth redistribution plan because it's mm-hmm. much more um, uh, significant. Like it, it it it's much more it taxes much more heavily people with extreme wealth. But Warren's polls incredibly well. I think something like fifty three percent or more of Republicans support her mm-hmm. her tax on the extremely wealthy. And I think the reason that that plan, her wealth redistribution plan, polls better than any wealth redistribution plan has ever polled in the history of modern American politics. Is because she knows how to present things to conservatives, um, and I think that's not a negative. Um, so that's my take on the matter. Yeah. As someone else who was a very conservative uh, person at one point in their life, um, yeah. So, uh, career-wise, Elizabeth Warren has a habit of joining educational institutions in the throes of sudden change. Uh, In 1978, she was hired by her alma mater, uh, the University of Houston, as a professor. Now, at that point, the University of Houston had only a single tenured professor. Enrollment by women was surging, though, and the school's gender imbalance among the faculty had become a major issue. Uh, In a Washington Post article I read on the matter, the author claims that, quote, Houston is where Liz Warren became Elizabeth Warren. Okay. Uh, And there are a few reasons to think this. One is that at the time, she was a 29-year-old fresh-faced law grad from Rutgers. Now, that might sound impressive to you um, because Rutgers is a pretty good college from what I hear. Uh, But for reasons known only to hoity-toity law people, Rutgers was considered a real shit school. Really? Um, Like, yeah, like, like kind of just, it's not good. Like, the the law school particularly is Mm -hmm. not good. Um, Every article I find about this period in her life notes that, like, people... Thought, like looked down on her and it was considered kind of amazing that she'd gotten hired by the University of Houston because she only had a Rutgers degree. Oh, well, that's um, probably why it only costs $450 a semester. Yeah, I'm just saying Rutgers is garbage. Uh, terrible school. <laughs> and if you listen and are from Rutgers, we don't want you listening. Yeah, get uh, the hell, hell out. Yeah, fuck go off, on, Rutgers. Is. 
I disagree. Actually, our friend You're Daniel O'Brien went here. to Rutgers. Yeah. I know. And Dan O'Brien is a terrible lawyer. So mm, the true. worst lawyer. Also James O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, also a bad lawyer. Now, (laughs) uh, many people who are actually fine with the idea of a woman professor at the University of Houston balked at the idea of Warren being hired just because of her alma mater. So that's fun. Um, Now, one person who did believe in Elizabeth Warren as a professor of law was Eugene Smith, a professor at the university and the head of uh, the U of Houston's hiring committee. Now, Eugene Smith was a legendary asshole. Uh, He had suffered from (laughs) polio as a child, and he lived with post-polio syndrome uh, that by the late 1970s made it difficult for him to drive or live any kind of a normal life. Uh, He sat down for Elizabeth Warren for dinner before hiring her, and according to Smith, he ordered a steak, which he had trouble cutting up because his hands and arms and stuff weren't working. Uh, He looked up angrily at Liz and basically asked, like, why aren't you helping? Um, and it seems like this was sort of a um, a test by him to see how she'd respond. And Elizabeth responded, and he said, basically, he's like, why aren't you helping? Don't you know I have polio? Um, and his test was kind of see how she'd respond. And Elizabeth responded by saying, I figured you knew you had polio when you ordered the steak. Um, so... He he was a became a huge advocate for her and pushed for her to be hired, and she in fact was. Um, she spent five years uh, in Houston, which is by my count about fifteen years too long to spend in Houston. Um, she achieved tenure there uh, in 1981 and bounced around as a visiting professor for the University of Texas at Austin uh, and a visiting professor at the University of Michigan. She also taught Sunday school. Um, She was eventually hired as a full professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School in 1987 and made an endowed chair in 1990. So she gets tenure at the University of Houston, gets teaching jobs at a number of other universities, then gets hired as a full professor at a completely different college and made an endowed chair of that university in 1990 after three years there. This is, in academic terms, a really meteoric rise. Like, this doesn't really happen often to people. It was easier to get tenure back then, but even so, like this is sort of evidence that she was seen by all of her colleagues and management at the like, administration at the universities as being an mm-hmm. exceptional professor. Now, she had a pattern of bouncing around a lot of different law schools uh, and achieving prestigious positions in them very rapidly. And I'm not going to go through all of the different chairships and stuff she got. There's a lot. Um, by 1992, she attracted the eyes of the Harvard Faculty Hiring Board. Um, Now, in 1992, there were only five women professors with tenure at Harvard Law School. This had led to widespread protest among the students who complained that the number of women on the faculty had declined in the early 1990s. The year Warren was hired, students passed around a pamphlet that noted, net change in female faculty since 1990, negative two. This figure will improve to negative one if Elizabeth Warren accepts a position here. So. Like with her time in Houston, she kind of comes into this university when it does not have a great reputation for hiring women. Um, So she arrived as a visiting professor and very quickly endeared herself to students and faculty. Professor Richard Fallon Jr. credits her with playing a major role in helping to move Harvard to a place where it hired more female faculty and had a more diverse student body. Uh, Her students are almost universal in praising her as an educator. She became particularly renowned for practicing the Socratic method in a way that basically no teachers do anymore. Um, One of the few exceptions was Alana Kagan when she taught at Harvard, who's now on the the Supreme Court. Um, Now, uh, Warren was famous for making a habit of calling on every single student in the class regularly. 
uh, and having her assistants keep track of which students had not spoken enough so that she could be sure to talk to everybody consistently. Laptops were banned in her class, not to stop people from browsing on the internet or using Facebook, but actually to stop people from taking notes. She was afraid that if students were busy taking notes, it would like distract from the discussion, the Socratic dialogue that she mm. wanted to have with her students. So her goal was to engage them and talk with them rather than to just lecture to them. And this is part of why she was such a, yeah, such a a prominent teacher, such a respected teacher. One of her students from the fall of 1999 described her class as a cold intellectual shower first thing in the morning. There are lots of people who are that demanding and just kind of mean about it. The trick is to be that demanding and still have your students love you, which Warren seemed to be really good at. Um, she was hard, but fair and really like people like, again, consistently in interviews with a whole, like, uh, you know, student after student after student, a lot of them will say that like Warren was the teacher whose approval you crave the most. Um, so that's something. Yeah. I know. Um, I know that teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Teacher. Yeah. And this all sounds like, like her class sounds like a nightmare to me cause I hated college and I, I liked sitting on my laptop and not doing anything, but I'm the kind of person who shouldn't have been in college. So it sounds like she was your best case scenario for getting your money's worth out of a a class at Harvard. Um, She was very well regarded and was widely seen as one of the most well-loved professors on campus. Harvard held annual mock auditions to raise money for charity, and Professor Warren was frequently the highest bid member of the faculty. She would usually promise to tell students' mothers nice things about them. So, yeah. Now, among other things, Elizabeth Warren was noted for providing voluminous feedback, sometimes several pages of it, to questions often only a few paragraphs in length. Every report you'll read about her class makes it clear that it was really, truly, deeply important for her, for her students to learn not just rote answers, but a meaningful understanding of how the law operates. Uh, In 1997, Eugene Smith, the hiring committee head at the University of Houston, that that legendary asshole we talked about earlier, the guy who helped jumpstart her career by hiring her even when it was kind of a risky decision, well, that guy died. Uh, He asked Elizabeth Warren to speak at his funeral. And what came next shocked almost everybody. I'm going to quote from a Washington Post write-up on the matter now. And again, this is in 1997. With a smile on her face and humor in her voice, Warren described how Smith had invited her to his office one day just a few months after she had been hired. He shut the door and lunged for her, she said. And as she protested, he chased her around his desk before she was able to escape out the door. Everyone was slack-jawed, recalled John Mixon, a retired University of Houston professor who had been close friends with Smith and Warren. Among those listening, Smith's ex-wife and his three adult sons. In the pews, people exchanged glances. Some at UH disliked Smith. He'd kept a bottle of scotch in his desk and often told dirty jokes, one colleague remembered later. But Mean Gene, as he was known, was generally regarded (laughs) as harmless. Diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, Smith walked walked, uh, hunched over, his arms increasingly useless as he aged. Some wondered whether it was physically possible for Smith to have done what Warren described. To have this image of him chasing her around the desk, it was just comical, and she told the story without rancor, Mixon recalled. Now, that's disturbing. She clearly frames it as like a humorous moment, but Mm. like... That's not a good thing for your boss to do to you. That sounds pretty Um, terrible. Sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. And when Warren had, like Warren back at the time asked Mixon for advice on how to deal with the matter, uh, and he'd urged her to say nothing because she was new to the field and he was an established, Mm -hmm. Mean Gene was an established professor. Now, this is horrible and fucked up, um, but, you know, Elizabeth took his advice. And if we're all honest, his advice was probably the best path for her to take in order to have a career in the field she loved. This was, you know, 1978, not a time in which fighting the establishment in this way probably would have worked. Oh, no. Like, yeah. that's fucked up, but that's the way it is. 
Um, or with the way it was, you know. Um, now, in the wake of the Me Too movement, Warren made a point of telling her story in a couple of interviews. Far-right shit rags like the Washington Times lambasted her for being inconsistent with her recollection of events. Mm. This is mainly due to the fact that when other people like Mixon had written about Warren's recollections about uh, Smith, uh, he... Like they made it seem distinctly lighthearted. Mixon had written in a biography uh, of Mean Jean, quote, Jean's chasing her around the desk in an uncontrolled lust while she laughed, equally uncontrolled as she avoided his crab like grasp. So, like, you God. know, <laughs> she tells it as like a funny moment at his funeral. And when it gets written up by her colleagues, they write the story up as a funny anecdote about this guy. Um, so the Washington Times says that her bringing this up as part of the Me Too movement is inconsistent with the way it was recalled earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to quote from how she talked about it on Meet the Press in 2017. Quote, he slammed the door and lunged for me. It was like a bad cartoon. He's chasing me around the desk, trying to get his hands on me. And I kept saying, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. I have little children at home. Please don't do this. And trying to talk calmly. And at the same time, what was flickering through my brain is if he gets hold of me, I'm going to punch him right in the face. So, yeah, that's yeah. a thing. I hate that story. It's not a good story. I don't like it. Uh, I hate even more than the story, the way the Washington Times dealt with it. Sure. Um, yeah, it's pretty gross just, um, to just sort of uh, frame it like that. Mm-hmm. As, if, as if they care. That's a, kind of a tactic yeah. they often – like organizations like that often do where it's like, actually, she changed her mind for this. Like, you don't care. You don't care about the story. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's, you know, it's two things are possible. It is possible that, number one, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren grew up in the 50s and 60s right. in the Deep South. Uh, I'm going to guess this isn't the worst male-related interaction she had. It absolutely was So not. it's entirely possible that at the time, because this guy was too weak and too old and, and kind of a, a friend outside of this, that she did take it in a more lighthearted fashion. Um, and recall it that way, partially as self-defense, partially because there's a, you know, it it, it would have been way worse, obviously, if been like, yeah, too. yeah. Um, and it's also possible that it was still really uncomfortable and something that, you know, gave her doubts about her career and mm-hmm. her worth. And that was also just like, you know, it wasn't as, it's not obviously the worst case scenario for sexual harassment, but it's bad. It's a shitty thing she had to deal with, and it was totally appropriate, yeah. in my opinion, for her to bring it up as part of the Me Too movement when that all hit, yeah. you know? Um, you can say it would have been, you know, a more courageous moment, like, choice for her to, like, take a stand at the time and, like, you know, try to get this guy ousted, but yeah. or like it also shit, probably would have been... At his funeral. Well, it would have been <laughs> yeah. really uh, detrimental to her career. Yeah, right. and I'm not going to, you know, anyone who did stand up in 1978 in that sort of situation, I will definitely praise extra mm-hmm. for their courage, but I'm not going to say that there's anything wrong with the way she handled that or or the way she, you know, her, the, the decision she made, you know? She was put in an impossible position by an asshole, and she didn't made the best of it. Uh, as a professor at Harvard, Elizabeth Warren was pretty consistently praised for keeping her personal politics out of the classroom. The morning after the 2000 election, she did discuss the Bush-Gore stalemate with her bankruptcy class, but students in that class recalled that she never gave any indication as to who she supported. This is pretty consistent among decades' worth of reports from her students. Liz Warren was not a professor who talked politics. Um, she did spend a huge amount of time researching the causes of bankruptcy and economic collapse, mm-hmm. though, among American families. For most of her career, it was assumed that bankruptcy was usually the result of irresponsible for personal finance choices. Uh, 
In the 2004 book Warren wrote with her daughter, Amelia Tiagi, The Two-Income Trap, Why Middle-Class Mothers and Fathers Are Going Broke, she pointed out that workers made success significantly less than their counterparts 30 years ago had made. And this was, you know, kind of um, not something that was being commonly discussed at the time. The New York Times review of her book noted, quote, the authors find that it is not the free-spending young or the incapacitated elderly who are declaring bankruptcy so much as families with children. Their main thesis is undeniable. Typical families often cannot afford high-quality education, healthcare, and neighborhoods required to be middle-class today. More clearly than anyone else, I think, Miss Warren and Miss Tiagi have shown how little attention the nation and our government have paid to the way Americans really live. And it does kind of seem like her research and study on on this matter is part of what kind of, I don't know, radicalized is the wrong word for someone who in a sane society be considered a centrist, um, but but pushed her away like sure. in, into liberal and democratic politics. Um, in 2005, she co-published a study on bankruptcy and medical debts, which revealed for the first time that half of family bankruptcy filings happened in the wake of major medical issues. And again, this is the first time that data was like clearly laid out in a scientific manner. Um, so that's a big deal, like pointing out, not just arguing that bankruptcy isn't the fault of personal irresponsibility, showing with data that it's the result of medical Right, being able uh, to point debt. to the actual problem. Yeah. Um, yeah, to as a jumping off point to what you actually want to do with it. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. Like that's that's useful scholarship that helped provide information that can be used to better the world. Yeah, uh, and I think I think that also it sort of just points to that the evolution that you can't necessarily dismiss as like oh she's a Republican she's a Republican. Like yeah. there are these things that have happened that have led her to sure. these conclusions. And I think that's a good I example of like, oh, there's this study that shows you. I mean, I personally wish that it didn't need that I know. <laughs> to, get, yes. to get you over there. But, but uh, at least you can. Yeah. You do the study. You look at the mm-hmm. thing and you're like, oh, that's a problem. And um, now she cares about solving it. So. Yeah, you know, it's something uh, people we there's been a lot of talk in the sort of de-radicalization community because there's been some like folks who left neo-Nazi groups recently and folks are, you know, people within the 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 community are like not sure if they're really honest about it or if this is right. just another grift if they're just trying to like make money um by because it's now profitable to like be a de-radicalization yeah, exactly, kind of person. Yeah. And so one of the things that I I really do agree with when people talk about this is like, uh, you know, it's it, it we want people to leave these communities. It's great if they do, but if you're going to leave these communities and like try to make a thing out of it rather than just try to make amends for the wrongs you've done, you got to be bringing something to the table. Um kind of like how um that former Breitbart editor brought all of these emails between her and her colleagues that are like, you know, part of what's revealed mm-hmm. the fucked up shit that right. Stephen Miller's did. Right. You bring something. You bring something she and lead- you actually show that yeah. you want to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I see what she's doing in the early 2000s, this like really dedicated and rigorous work to show the actual causes of bankruptcy and the problems that like lead people into poverty and how the system stacked against them. That's something she's bringing to the table beyond just saying I'm not a Republican anymore. Right. It's I yeah. I've actually uh, <laughs> I have a useful tool for people. Um, yeah. And yeah. And also, I think there's something you've said for just being able to uh, accept people. And not reject them um, because you want, like you said, you want people to uh, see the light, as it were, Mm -hmm. and to be accepted, uh, even with skepticism. That's, 
you know, healthy skepticism yep. is good, but yep. uh, not to re- like all out reject somebody just because of yeah, their past. Because we need to take a real yeah. quick break for uh, products and services mm, stuff. Building a movement towards products and services. And then we'll be back for more of this. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. Bean Dad, the dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's so dumb, 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 dumb. We're back. We're back. We're back. For more stuff. Are we back? We are. Were we ever gone? These no. are epistemological questions. Oh, wow. Um, uh, in 2008, well, still, while still teaching at Harvard, Elizabeth Warren met Barack Obama for the worst time. I thought you <laughs> said Barack. Barack also. <laughs> yeah, she accidentally punched him in the face. It was horrible. No, no, for the first time. The rock uh, now, this was no. at a, a fundraiser. It was actually uh, one of Barack Obama's very first out-of-state fundraisers for his Senate campaign. 
Um, the fundraiser had been put together by Professor David Wilkins, uh, and he recalls, quote, One of the people who came was Elizabeth Warren, and I had told Barack that she was coming, and he was very excited because he had been working on predatory lending in the Illinois State Senate, and so when Elizabeth came, I took her over to meet Barack. And here's how Warren recalled that meeting going uh, in 2011. Quote, he holds his hand out. That's just like this is just like in the movies. And I, as I hold my hand out and as our fingers touch, he says to me, "Predatory lending." And then he just goes, and I never get a word in. I never get a word in, and I'm just standing there, my hand still in his hand, and he's talking. Finally, he gets all the way to the end, and he gets this big grin, and he says, "Well," and I say, "You had me at predatory lending." I don't think that story is true. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> what a classic. I mean, obviously, they, they definitely they definitely met. But like, no, Barack Obama is one of those charismatic men who's men who's ever lived. Nobody starts a conversation like predatory lending. <laughs> Except so he weird. knows his audience. So. Also, like, the yeah, idea maybe that he I mean, just started talking and talking and talking. That's what and, like, I don't believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, I but, think uh, she's meeting somebody yeah, and being so, like, "You're going to listen yeah. to me." So you're calling, you're, uh, you're going to listen to me right now. Uh, predatory lending. Calling her a yeah. liar, guys. Are you calling her a liar? <laughs> Very I'm good. calling okay. her a politician. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Barack Obama was elected in 2008 and he took office in 2009, uh, during the darkest days of an economic collapse brought on by feckless fiscal policy that let grifters run amok in finance and real estate. For a little while there, we all had high hopes that Barack Obama would actually do something <laughs> did we about have high, the high problems hopes? of this. Yeah, we really did. Um, did. <laughs> boy, howdy. As a um, P reference. Yeah. Sure. Now, at this point in time, Liz Warren was not yet in Congress, but she was the chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, uh, which is an oversight board established to hopefully hold someone accountable for the financial collapse and to provide assistance to taxpayers. Now, TARP was a controversial program. Part of what it did was basically buy up toxic assets in order to help stabilize the financial sector. As chair of the TARP Oversight Panel, Warren was a harsh critic of this policy. And I'm going to quote from Politico. Here. In February 2009, Warren personally warned the Senate Banking Committee about the government's accounting sleight of hand. Despite the assurances of then Secretary, and this is Warren talking, despite the assurances of then Secretary Paulson, who said that transactions were at par, that is, for every $100 injected into the banks, the taxpayer received stocks and warrants from the banks worth about $100, the valuation study concludes that the Treasury paid substantially more for the assets it purchased under the TARP program than their then current market value. Now, the valuation study was commissioned by Warren's panel, and it showed that the total market value of TARP assets was roughly $176 billion, which was $78 billion less than what the government was paying these companies. So the difference basically constituted a transfer of taxpayer money directly to banks for free. Um, And while no one should be surprised that a government loan program, you know, did this – um, the account, well, like, sorry, what Politico notes is that, like, nobody should be surprised that the government loan program, like, did this. But what's interesting is the accounting wa- uh, method Warren used to expose these costs. She was using something called fair value accounting, which means making sure that evaluation reflects current market prices because things can get really fishy with these companies when they're trying to make it look like the government's getting a better deal than they really are. Um, so that's an important thing to note that when she was, you know, chair of this, this TARP committee, she used fair value accounting to attack the TARP program for basically giving free money to these companies that had brought on the financial collapse, right? Yeah. Just yeah. keep that in mind. Uh, that's definitely a good thing she did, but it ties into a bad thing she did later, so keep that in mind. Now, okay, in 2011... 
President Obama charged Elizabeth Warren with helping to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm -hmm. The Bureau's only job was to protect consumers from banks and predatory financial institutions. Now, there are a lot of criticisms you'll find uh, of the CFPB, uh, ranging from the valid, because it's questionable as to whether or not it's entirely constitutional, to the stupid. Uh, I found an article on The Hill that claims it damaged businesses by levying $5 billion in fines against financial entities that misbehaved, which is its job. Now, whatever you want to say, yeah, it's the Hill, you know? Whatever you want to say about the CFPB, the attempt to establish such a bureau was, in my opinion, pretty noble and reasonable. Um, Warren never actually ran the bureau. She just helped to create it. Rumor has it that President Obama was trying to push her for that job, but he was basically forced to pick somebody else because Warren was unpopular among certain politicians. Mm -hmm. Um, So... In 2012, Elizabeth Warren ran to be the U.S. Senator from Massachusetts. Taxachusetts, am I right? (laughs) Has anyone tried that joke yet? I think I'm breaking new ground there. Uh, She ran against an incumbent Republican senator, Scott Brown, who campaigned in a pickup truck in a bid to win support via his folksy ways. He derided Warren as professor in debates. This did not (laughs) work, and Elizabeth Warren, yeah, professor... Okay, Mr. Scientist. Yeah, exactly. Now, this didn't work, and Warren won handily, and I think that's a really valid point. Um, You know, when people talk about whether or not we should trust her because she was a Republican at one point, like, she has a proven ability to unseat Republicans who campaign, you know, by, by... pushing in hard mm-hmm. on their on their right wing. Yeah. She's able to do that. She did it before. So that's right, good. all right. Like, yeah. I don't doubt her liberalism yeah. at this point. No, I don't, I, I don't either. I'm just pointing out that yeah. I, I think there's, there's like evidence that her yeah. conservative background is an asset because yep. she was able to campaign against this guy and win. Yeah, despite her, um, him like calling her an egghead or whatever. Yeah, and in terms of like who I want, you know, the president being the head of the party, um, there's something to be said for a president who has direct personal experience unseating Republicans in the Senate, yeah. which is something we need to do a lot. Fair. Yeah, so – um, when she started her run for office, Warren told supporters, I don't want to go to Washington to be a co-sponsor of some bland little bill nobody cares about. I don't want to go to Washington to get my name on something that makes small change at the margin. Now, in her first four years in office, she co-sponsored four dozen resolutions for bland little bills nobody cares about, <laughs> including bills establishing National Rare Disease Day and honoring the entrepreneurial spirits of small business concerns, <laughs> which really changed things. Can you, do you guys remember the years before National Rare Disease Day? Those were dark times. They were. They were hard for everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know I, there were rare diseases. I, I thought it was just cancer and syphilis all the way down. No, no there's more. <laughs> yep. I what that's about. Not being able to get stuff done because you're new or – Yeah. Because I can't imagine that's a thing that she cared about. Also, I mean, yeah, you also want to be able to say like, oh, I co-sponsored I this many bills. Right. Like, exactly. It's like a, it's like I think a she was thing. taking yeah, like, some boxes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Take your stats or whatever. Yeah, something so that she'd have another bullet point to stick on right. one of those mailers they shove into the side of a door. You know? It's something you do. Yep. Yeah. It's not great. I'm not going to praise her for it. It's pretty normal. It's like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, like most politicians, Senator Warren found reality to deviate from her previous ambitions, and she had to make compromises to deal with the world of politics. For example, remember that stuff I just said about her condemnation of TARP and yeah. you know the accounting she used in order to prove it was a really fucking bad idea? Well, in 2014, she advocated for enhancing the federal student loan program based on the same sort of wobbly numbers she'd criticized the TARP program okay. for. Mm. From Politico. Because the government effectively assumes its estimate of what, consu- of what student loan recipients will payback carries no risk, official cost figures show the program earning a profit of $135 billion over the next 10 years. But the idea that a government program can subsidize students and generate profits at the same time should give anyone pause. Indeed, when the Congressional Budget Office applied fair value methods to federal student loans, it found that the profit is is actually an $88 billion loss for the taxpayers. So when Elizabeth Warren is analyzing and critiquing TARP, she uses fair value accounting. When she's trying to push a student loan, uh, like a new student loan program, she doesn't use fair value so that it looks like her the program she's supporting is better than it is. So that's, that's worth noting. Yeah, it is worth noting. Now, uh, during her time as senator, Elizabeth Warren has managed to push exactly one meaningful bill through the Senate the Smart Savings Act, which modified retirement accounts for federal workers to make their investments more valuable. Her student loan legislation was blocked by Republicans. So the only bill that you can say Elizabeth Warren got through during her time in the Senate is the Smart Savings Act. And this may seem like a crappy record. It's certainly not like an inspiring one. Um, But it's actually slightly above average for members of her congressional class of 2012. depressing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's a real Yeah. Yeah, most of the other senators elected alongside Warren in the same year have passed zero bills in the Senate. Only two of her classmates, Ted Cruz and Deb Fisher, have passed two bills. So she's gotten one bill through. The record is two. Wow. Fucking terrible system. Couldn't even even beat the Zodiac killer. Not a great system. You certainly can't say she's an exceptionally productive legislator, mm-hmm. um, but she's slightly above average given the time at which she was elected. And okay. given would be the it. ability yeah. to pass anything. Yeah. Yeah. Given the complete fuckedness of our system. Yeah. Um, now, Warren is, however, you know, well known for being influential outside of her specific legislative accomplishments. Mm-hmm. She's a remarkably potent member of the Senate Banking Committee, and her at times vicious questioning has led to a number of changes in federal policies that didn't require new legislation. Hell yeah. For example, she pushed the SEC to require banks to admit wrongdoing when they negotiate settlements. The Atlantic spoke to one of her critics, a financial services executive, who said this about her. She's both at the same time highly ineffective and influential. I know that sounds inconsistent, but it's not. She has no legislative accomplishment other than to derail a few nominees, which is easy to do. But to her credit, she is highly influential. Members of the House Democratic Caucus and Senate Democratic Caucus are really looking over their shoulders. So she's able to push to get mm-hmm. a lot of things done and changes made um, as a result of, of the fact that she's... debate experience yeah. in mm-hmm. high school. Because, yeah, she's good at the debate and shit. Now... When congressional Democrats talked about cutting Social Security in 2012, Warren got 42 out of 44 of them to vote yes on expanding Social Security benefits instead. Later, however, she failed to derail an omnibus bill that softened Dodd-Frank, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform law. Her best-known moment as a legislator may have come in 2016 when she grilled Wells Fargo CEO John Stumpf during a hearing over allegations of massive fraud within the organization. Uh, in a now viral video, she told Stumpf, you should resign. You should give back the money that you gained while the scam was going on, and you should be criminally investigated by the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission. 
Warren has been a consistent advocate of criminal charges and jail time for executives and CEOs who break the law. In the wake of the 2017 Equifax data breach, which affected 143 million people, Elizabeth Warren announced the Corporate Executive Accountability Act. If passed, this would impose jail time on executives who negligently permit or fail to prevent a violation of the law that impacts the health, safety, finances, or personal data of 1% or more of the population of any given state. A convicted CEO would get a year in prison for a first offense and up to three years for repeat offenses. You might call this a slap on the wrist, and I would, but it's also fucking something, and currently nothing happens to these people, so I'm going to call that good. Yeah, Yeah. elements of that where it's like, well, at least it's something. Mm -hmm. Some jail time is a massive improvement over they get rich and never face consequences. (laughs) Yeah, and even just the conversation of like holding them accountable needs to happen. Yes, yes. So- that's my six-page essay on Elizabeth Warren. Well done, Robert. Oh, yeah. Yay. We did it. We did it. But not quite, because now it's Cody's oh, time gosh. to talk Yay. about... Uh, we're going to compare a little bit between her and Bernie. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, just a little bit. I kind of wanted to keep it loose and see what you guys thought also of uh, just how, how the situation we're in is, because I know, Katie, you're like a big fan of Elizabeth Warren. I'm a fan. Um, and we sort of wanted to go through her uh, her platform in a little, little more detail and sort of compare uh, and contrast the two candidates sure. um, who I would say are the most progressive uh, available, especially yeah. now. The Definitely. Out. Yeah. OK. You know? um, yeah. So. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. Left wing firebrand yeah. uh, Kamala, you, literally a communist Harris. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. will be missed. Kamala. Kamala Harris. Yeah. It's not Kamala. Like, it's not even like a main headline today. No, it's not. Kamala. Harris. Okay. Right. All right. There's Let's... more. There's probably more, um, but also more like Kant Mala Harris. All right. Um... I mean, we could also draw a comparison between her and Ataturk Mustafa Kemal and call her Kamala Harris. There wouldn't be any logical through line there because I don't think they're similar in any way, shape, or form. No, uh, that's that's nothing. It just occurred to me. But yeah. But yeah. So uh, I think the main difference that is very clear with these two is that uh, I think that they're on they're on the same track, and I think they have similar goals. Um, but Bernie is just a little more. Uh, Bernie's a socialist and she's a capitalist. <laughs> I mean, there you go. That's what I was going to get at. Um, there, you know, Bernie's not um, going to mince words about what he thinks about capitalism um, and a lot of the issues that uh, arise from that. Whereas uh, Elizabeth Warren has said that she is a capitalist to her bones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the moments I really disliked from her was during the State of the Union. I was going to bring Trump that up. Promised. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll let you. Do oh that. no. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the yeah. best example of this is uh, during Trump's State of the Union address, he talks about socialism and how socialism is never going to come to America. Um, and at this moment, uh, everybody stands up and gives him applause, except for yeah. you can see Bernie Sanders uh, just sitting there yeah. stone faced, just like, oh, you don't know the deal. Yeah. And I think that there is a um, I, I, I think there's a real problem when a fascist says that socialism uh, will never happen in America. And yeah. um, a capitalist to her bones stands up and claps because that is I one large part of what fascism is, yeah. is like protecting capitalism. Yeah. And everybody else stood up, too. Everybody else stood up, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, but that's like that's the time for a principled moral stance, especially if your single most noteworthy policy is literally wealth de- redistribution, mm-hmm. which is like the core of socialist yeah. politics Yeah. Um, at this point in time. Yeah. But her whole thing is... Bringing socialist these practices, these policies, but maintaining capitalism. Well, yeah, because so, overhauling the system is X, Y, or Z. Yes. You know, like, uh, I, I, 
If she didn't need to stand reason, up, it doesn't rub me quite as raw as you guys. I, I mean, I see it as a real reason to worry that she's not going to actually push right. for a lot of the stuff that she she says she's going to push for. That this will this income redistribution and Medicare for all the actual like socialist things that she's she's talked about um, will die on the vine because she's going to compromise right. with Republicans yeah. and will wind up with another four years of Obama. Exactly. That's a real concern. Yeah. Um, again, especially like if a, if a fascist says uh, <laughs> we're going to save capitalism, I don't think you should stand up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, it's not a good look. I, I don't like that she did that. It, it's uh, the single moment that gives me most pause about her. Yeah. And I think it's sort of uh, that general idea um, can be seen in the difference between them. Um, although she does have a wealth tax uh, that, mm-hmm. you, as you mentioned, uh, pulls very well. Um, yeah. Obviously, his is uh, more extreme. Uh, hers goes mm-hmm. uh, just it's 2% or 6% depending on uh, your mm-hmm. wealth. Uh, Sanders starts at 2% um, between 32 million and 50 million. Mm-hmm. And hers doesn't have anything mm-hmm. in that category. Um, interesting. Yeah. Also, if you if you see like some celebrities be like, I actually I think they're both great, but I like Warren. Uh, Probably because they don't fall within that. Right. Bracket. Sometimes you look in and like, oh, you you your yeah. net worth is like 40 million or something like that. Um, so his is more progressive there, but she has it. And that's something. So I think that there is a there's a progressive path yeah. that she's on. Like it's it's beyond arguing that based on assuming she actually goes for the things on her platform, if she were elected, she would be the most progressive candidate elected during our lifetime. Yeah. Now, there's reason to worry that she wouldn't go through with it. um, Right. But yeah. Right. And so that's sort of uh, what we're getting at. Like there there are other similarities like they, uh, you know, they want to get rid of the electoral college. Uh, Mm -hmm. They want to restructure ICE. Uh, Both of them. I think his language is a little stronger. But not, neither of them have said, like, I want to abolish ICE. Yeah, um, I don't like that either. Don't like that either. But that's Yeah. We talked about that in the Bernie episode. They're both believers in borders. They're both fundamentally, you know, they want to be president of the United States. And there's only so, – Bernie is about the most progressive you can be and want to be the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Right, they, right. They both <laughs> – I think there should be president still, yeah. Yeah. They both do fundamentally support aspects of what ICE does. Um, right. And I think that also, like, yeah. even when uh, when she is talking about her, mil- her plan for the military, um, she her vision is a, a green military. And yeah, uh, th- the way she talks about it, I think, is um, a little uh, disconcerting. Um, be- and it's because when she yeah. like on her website, like literally, if you look at her foreign policy and her military page, the first sentence is from endless wars that strain military families. To, and then she goes on. And if you're framing it like the endless wars are bad because of the strain on military families, then that sort of indicates that maybe you don't yes. really. You're not get. You're missing the point. Right. And it's sort of that like presenting this seemingly progressive idea, but framed in Republican uh, language mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, maintaining this idea. And like her, her military plan also talks about getting them to uh, green energy and uh making all the military bases safe from climate disasters and stuff without pointing out, by the way, we have way too mili- many military right. bases around the world. It's all about sort of protecting that institution mm-hmm. as opposed to pointing out the flaws in the institution. It's and also it- like pandering to certain sides, protecting certain, yes, exactly. certain elements of it, but while yeah. also like tapping into something that, you know, the liberals would, would respond to. It, it- and this is one of those things where like – so it, when I talk about like my my issues with Warren, there's the stuff that like makes me question whether or not voting for her would actually help anything if she mm-hmm. were to get elected. 
Um, which is like the whole being like standing during that point in the state of the universe. Right, right. That, we really, but then, and then there's the things where I think her beliefs, like the beliefs that are leading her to this, are like wrong and fucked up, and she's not going to deal with big aspects of the problem. But if she actually does that thing, it would be huge. And yes. that the U.S. military thing, it, it, like, it's one of those things you can hit on her because, like, okay, so you're fine with us being imperialists and like bombing people as long as we're green about it, right? And yeah, that's fucked up. But also, the U.S. military is the single largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. Yeah. Um, right, and there are aspects of that, and if you if you like, do if you yeah. focus on reducing their footprint and developing green technology for them, yeah. that'll trickle down to you know mm-hmm. the people who really need it, it and so on. It, well, and it's also just like if we're talking about single actions that could be taken in order to stop climate change quickly, one of the things that has to happen very quickly is the U.S. military has to stop emitting greenhouse yeah. gases. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I think there, like there's a lot of that where yeah. <laughs> I I think that she uh, some of the things she wants to do are good and uh, but like framed in a in a way and mm-hmm. um you just wish that it was a little more pointed in the criticism and really like leading the conversation about it. Let's let's talk about yeah. Medicare for all. Her yeah and yeah I, uh, yeah. Let's get to that because um, there there are a lot of details uh, about differences in their plans and I think that that's d- the general idea is that. Uh, her plans sort of are couched in this, like, let's preserve what's going on, despite framing it like big structural change. Yeah. Like, she's very much like, this is a grassroots movement of big structural change, mm-hmm. but actually she just wants to regulate capitalism. Well, so, like, on the car ride over here you were talking about, it boils down to Bernie being like, yes, Medicare for all, and and her at this point proposing it be a two-step process. Yeah, so she is slowly uh That within shifted. two years, so like get certain things started and then after two years push for the Medicare for all. Yeah, the pl- her, so her plan, uh, and it's, it's a slow process, and I think this is indicative of what we're talking about, where uh, she has slowly gotten on board with Medicare for all. It wasn't like a big part of her platform when she was running for Senate or anything, but uh, she has gotten on board with a single payer and – sort of avoided talking about how she's going to pay for it and not just sort of full-throatedly being like, this is the right thing to do. We're going to do it. Um, well, she does say this is the right thing to do. We're going to do it. Oh, ultimately. Ultimately, but, ultimately. Ultimately. I mean, like, and like, and so this is a different development. If a couple of months ago, she wasn't saying it in two steps. She was talking she's about saying, it. We're going to do it. And we're going to pay and for that, it. And... and that I do understand being a little bit of a cause for alarm. But I, I push for you to bring this up now because I just think it's interesting conversation that we should all be having. I know that you're very much staunchly in the camp of yes. And I am too. I, I think pushing for Medicare for all is how you get to Medicare for all. Right. Um, yeah. I do understand. I, do, I, I know that it is scary to a lot of people, even if they do want it. They're not sure how it will work out. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering – how off-putting is this idea of two years starting and then after two years pushing for the – going for the rest of the way? And also how long it would take anyways. Like how long would it take Bernie right. to get around to getting us Medicare for all? Maybe maybe it would be even harder to obtain. I don't know. But it, well, it's, it's, I think it, it's the kind of thing though, Katie, when you're like – when you're haggling with somebody at like a bazaar sure. or whatever, one of the parts of the world where that's the way buying is done, you don't start – with the highest you're willing to pay, you start like you know you 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 start with as good as sure. like the best thing you can imagine price you can imagine getting, and you push for that so that you know when you you you're going to have to give some, mm-hmm. you push for we're going to start making these changes immediately, um, and yeah. obviously there's no, there will be friction. There's no public but, option in Obamacare, yeah. and there's a reason yeah. for that. No, and, like, I, and, I, and I get that, and I I do agree with it. But uh, I think there's also so there's this article in the Washington Post a couple of days ago about the sort of behind the scenes story of her. 
struggle with like presenting the plan and and trying to sort of toe the line in a way where uh, she wants to be this uh, hyper progressive on Medicare for all, but also a lot of people in the party are pressuring her behind the scenes. Like, right. this is a bad idea. You shouldn't do this. Um, and finally, the end result is we're going to lower the age for uh, Medicare to 50 and then 18 and below you get it also. And we're going to vote and we're going to do that. And then in three years, we're going to vote again and we're going to give it to everybody because by then it'll people will be like, oh, it's actually good. That it's working. Um, yeah. But I mean, there are several problems with that. I think um, like you were pointing out, Robert, like you you go with what you want to do and you say, here's what we want and what we're going to do. And then you're probably going to have to back up a little bit because that's how the government works. As you said, like, yeah, one bill in her whole time. Yeah. But, so but also. Um, if you're waiting until your third year to like push for it, that means you need to maintain the uh, Congress, control of Congress yeah. in, Senate. In, in the midterms. And that's hard for a person that was just elected. Real quick, I just mm-hmm. want to interject and say this because we don't talk about it enough on the show, but I hope we do in the new year that just as important, if not more important to, than the presidential election. Well, that's incredibly important. Oh, yeah. Is yeah. the Senate. And I think that we should talk about that a lot. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. highlight those races. Right. Because, because in that situation, you need the people to be able to put if that If we through. want anything to happen with any of these candidates, we need uh, some Democrats in right. the Senate. And I think that anyway. sort of points to why she also – so she's and in I, favor of getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think is uh, – I think there are arguments for and against that too. I think that uh, – <laughs> It can be used by people who've been, you know, mm-hmm. uh, want to stop you from doing things like this. Um, but uh, so I think that speaks to her like we're just going to try to do it. But you need that support. I think I, yeah. I, and, and I, I do agree with you guys. I, I, I know and I agree. I just uh, I do wonder what is if that feels less intimidating to a voter that is coming into this and not sure yeah. where they stand on the issue. There, That's the only thing that I put out there. There's a couple of different ways I feel about this, Katie. One of them is sort of there, there's the issues like the millet, like the green military thing, yeah. where I, I I agree we should be talking about how to fundamentally change the way our our nation like works militarily and in foreign policy, so mm-hmm. that we're not involved in wars all around the world and drone striking. Like we just killed a bunch of kids in Afghanistan. Um, uh, I, I I totally agree with that. Um, but at the same time, we are where we are in this country, and I think that the way she's you know reducing the U.S. military's emissions is critical, and the way she's framed that is a good way to get moderate and conservative mm-hmm. voters who are kind of on the fence in behind it. Because if you start being like, we're going to abolish the U.S. military, right. th- those people aren't going to vote for you, right? You got to – so I think that's an example of – She's good at framing stuff for conservatives and uh, okay, I may wish things were different, but we are where we are and that makes sense to me. And then there's the stuff where I think by not pushing harder, um, she's causing she, – she, she, or not even causing, she's representative of mm-hmm. a problem. Like yeah. with right. student – like her, her plan on student loan debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. Oh, she consistently says that her plan would provide at least some debt cancellation for 95% of people with student loan debt. Um, and she, I'm going to quote her directly here. It cancels 50,000 student loan debt for every person with household income under $100,000. It provides substantial debt cancellation for every program with household income between $100,000 and $250,000. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, that would be better than what we have now, but it's very different from what Sanders has. Sure. Um, cause his is total debt cancellation. Yeah. So right. under, you know, uh, 
Now, that may not seem huge. It may seem like things get better either way. But there's a reason why I find that worrying. And it was really well elucidated in an article in Current Affairs magazine called The Prospect of an Elizabeth Warren Nomination Should Be Very Worrying. And I'm going to quest, I'm going to, I'm going to quote from that now. Means testing is a critical part of the difference between the two, because in it we see the serious differences between what Sanders and Warren each think the world ought to be like. Sanders believes in a decommodified provision of public goods where they're free and you get to use them because you're a person. Warren believes much more strongly in giving them only to people who satisfy a set eligibility criteria. Now, defenders of means testing will argue that it is progressive, and this is why they say things like, you don't want to give free college to Donald Trump's kids, mm. but you should you give do. free college. Yeah to them for the same reason that we give Donald Trump's kids the same access to free public high schools and free roads and free fire services and free libraries and free parks. They are people, so they get given the same basics as everyone else. And that's one of my major issues with it. And I don't don't disagree with it. I I don't disagree with that at all. Like, I I get Mm -hmm. that. And it's something that I think Mm -hmm. about as well. Um, but I do wonder how that uh, for other people that aren't as liberal as us that we're trying to get. And that's just what yeah. I think about. Yeah, yeah. And as we're putting out this information and it's just part of this conversation that we're having. Yeah, it's a concern. Um, but I think I don't know. I, I per, like personally, when I see when I, like when I see Bernie Sanders go on Fox News and the crowd at Fox News is clapping for him for the things he's saying, it tells me that if you honestly talk about these problems in a, in a, yeah. pro- like in a progressive way and you frame them in a way where like it is about everybody, it's the, it's the not me, us sort of approach mm-hmm. to it. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's more effective than we uh, give it credit for. Yeah. Um, because it is like when you talk about means testing and being sort of exclusionary in these ways, yeah. um, you don't know everybody's situation. Yeah. And the idea is that everybody gets it because everybody should get it. Yep, exactly. Um, and, same and, same and thing and with energy and all, all these sort of things yep. we're talking about. And it's yeah, it uh, yeah, it's because we're trying. We it's because we fundamentally need to change society, uh, our society, at a a pretty basic level, or we're going to. Uh, either collapse into a fascist nightmare state or have a civil war or something like that. So we think we can't just, it's we're, we're, we're not at, we're no longer at the enough duct tape can keep no, the, bunker, it's, it's the unsustainable. bumper on the car play. Uh, yeah. Well, that's a um, <laughs> uplifting way to end this show. <laughs> well, no, I, I actually want, I, there's one more quote I want to read from that current affairs article. If okay. I can, um, yeah. that I think is, I, I agreed with as well. Uh, One of the most important things Bernie Sanders has ever said is this. I'm going to run the presidency differently than anyone else. I'm not only going to be commander in chief, I'm going to be organizer in chief. Mm. What does that mean? It means that Sanders is not going to stop speaking on picket lines when he becomes president. Trump did not stop holding rallies. This was smart. This was a critical mistake that Barack Obama made. He stopped organizing when he got into office. I have previously discussed the way Warren focuses on plans while Sanders focuses on power. Everyone knows that Elizabeth Warren has a plan for that. But if those plans are going to go anywhere, you need what Sanders is talking about, a political revolution. You need to overthrow the existing Democratic Party leadership in the DNC and in Congress. You need to threaten to run the primary candidates against anyone who doesn't support your agenda. You need a giant on-the-ground operation of people who will lobby for your agenda and convince Americans that anyone who opposes it needs to be ejected from office. I think one of the fundamental problems with Barack Obama was that he was a law professor. He came up with a plan, and if he didn't have the votes in Congress to pass it, that that was that. The plan was dead. Right. The law professor accepts political reality is fixed. Well, the movement builder tries to get millions of people to act politically in order to alter that reality. And I, th- yeah, that's, that's, I think, really an important note. That's yeah. a good, yeah, that sort of uh, kind of puts it all together and uh, what we're talking about, because I think that also she sort of uses that language, but it doesn't necessarily uh, push for it. 
Yeah. Like she talks about the grassroots movement. She talks about the organizing, but it's not really uh, with the same goal. Right. Um, of doing of doing and, that and really like creating a movement of power to uh, give back to the people as opposed to like regulating the people yeah. a little bit. This is all very interesting. Uh, I In a very important conversation to be having as we're comparing them. I still love her, but you know, these are all important distinctions as people. I think that a lot of people are, it's going to come down, especially our listeners yeah. uh, to Bernie or Warren. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Well, and I think if like if, if, Bernie wasn't running or hasn't been a politician for decades, I think that this would be a different kind of episode. Yeah. Right. Um, you know? <laughs> you would frame it differently? Um. <laughs> so, yeah, like, we, we, we've we we've run out of time for this episode. There's more we want to talk about mm-hmm. in terms of, like, some stuff we missed on Bernie, in terms of differences between Bernie and Warren. Um, we're going to get to that in another episode. We're not done with this, but I think we've provided a really good overview of her career mm-hmm. and our concerns with her and the stuff we like. I hope people think this is fair. I think it's fair. I think it's um, fair. Yeah. I think it's fair. So and if you if don't you think don't it's th- fair. Then you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you're wrong and you can drag us on Twitter. Mm. Um, you guys want to want to lead us out? Yeah. Uh, oh, if you want to drag us on Twitter, it's at Worst Year Pod. Mm-hmm. It's also at Worst Year Pod on Instagram. All the um, things. All those things. I'm Katie Stoll on Twitter. I'm Dr. Mr. Cody on Twitter. Yeah. And I'm Dr. Mr. Katie Stoland. Damn it. Robert Evans. <laughs> I thought uh, you wrote and I'm, okay. I'm at I write okay on Twitter. Um, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jinx. A Lizzo with. A Lizzo. For in. Nope. You know what? Bye Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Y'all have a wonderful day. Buy products. Buy products. We have buy products. Vote, vote for whoever. Team public. Dot com. Support your local candidates. Slash <laughs> worst your pod. Slash worst your pod. Bye. Also products. Everything's so dumb. Everything's so dumb and it's gonna get dumber. Great. I tried. Yes. Daniel. Lovely. Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.